Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Thursday, October 19th. Israel has agreed to allow humanitarian aid into Gaza, and U.S. President Joe Biden is now back on American soil after a whirlwind visit to the war zone. We get the latest on the conflict from Christian Loiprecht, professor at the Royal Military College and editor of the Canadian Military Journal. One in eight. That's the number of Canadian women who will be diagnosed with breast cancer in their lifetime. We discuss the importance of self-advocacy and early detection of this deadly disease with Dr. Amy Commander, Director of Breast Oncology at the Mass General Cancer Centre in Boston. And finally, it's hard to come by good news these days with headlines focused on military conflict, economic struggles and more. We get some tips on how to deal with heavy news headlines and the impact they can have on us with Karen Gallagher-Burt, mental health advocate and social worker with the Distress Center. 7.05 now and Israel's fight with terrorist group Hamas continues. There's much talk though as that war rages on about humanitarian aid trying to get into Gaza to look after those people in that area. So uh, this morning we're checking in and discussing the latest on this battle with Christian Loipresh, professor at the Royal Military College and Queen's University, as well as editor of the Canadian Military Journal. Good morning to you, Christian. Thanks again for joining us this morning. Good morning. Always a pleasure. Let's talk about the latest on aid headed to Gaza. Is it even going to be able to get into that area? Yeah, so of course, everything in this conflict and in the region is highly politicized. And so the concern about aid on the one hand is, of course, that uh, it will fall into the hands of Hamas that will then use it to, uh, on the one hand, divert it to their fighters, and on the other hand, will instrumentalize it to give it only to those people who support Hamas and not to others. Um, at the same time, of course, uh, the whole issue around aid is also about the, the border crossing. Uh, Egypt wants to make sure that uh, um, it, it continues to have have control of the border crossing. You'll remember the hordes of people in the Afghanistan drawdown in Kabul. Um, so on the one hand, Idris wants to avoid those sorts of pictures. On the other hand, one of the hypocrisies of the Arab states is, of course, that uh, they all claim to support the Palestinian people. But in practice, they don't want any more Palestinians uh, on their own territory. And so, I mean, uh, President al-Sisi has basically come out uh, and said explicitly that he doesn't want any ref- uh, Palestinian refugees. So it's not just about the aid, it's about the politics on both sides of the border that are associated with that aid. Okay, so we talked about the setup in the region and and the politics, but where is the help and the resources coming from? What countries have stepped up to help in the humanitarian aid side of things? Yeah, so of course this is a, a long-standing issue uh, it, with regards to the, the Palestinian territories. It is the one area in the world where we have a standalone UN organization, uh, which is indicative of the political challenges uh, that surround the whole uh, ch- uh, historical challenges between uh, how land and people are divided up in the region. And of course that is a major part sort of for the conflict and so inherently which countries support which particular uh, peoples in this conflict is never just a humanitarian question. It's also inherently uh, a deeply uh, a deeply political question. And so uh, the challenge is that uh, no matter how aid is provided, where it is provided, and who provides it, um, is always going to have significant political ramifications. And it's one of the reasons why, on the one hand, Everybody wants to immediately pour in with aid, but it's also one of the reasons why it's actually so difficult to get aid in precisely because
because it's so politicized. Uh, Christian, we're reading that, you know, more than a million Palestinians, roughly half of Gaza's population at this point, have fled their homes in the north in Gaza City after Israel told them to evacuate. Airstrikes early today continuing across the territory. Uh, is this just this bombardment of Gaza going to continue? Is there any end in sight? Do you think, you know, that that, that Israel will just continue to pound and try to, to get as many members of Hamas as they can? Right, so there's two separate sort of issues here. One is the humanitarian situation. Gaza was already one of the most densely populated urban spaces in the world before this conflict. So now you can imagine if you have uh, a million people um, having to concentrate in basically half the space from before, uh, that in itself was always bound to be, uh, in humanitarian terms, uh, very, very challenging. Um, and to fight any sort of ur- uh, warfare in this sort of circumstance is bound to come with significant collateral damage. Uh, at the same time, of course, I think the fact that Israel has not started a ground offensive suggests that Israel is fully aware that not just is a ground offensive operationally very difficult, but what are going to be have to be the objectives. Well, the objectives have to be that Hamas cannot launch ISIS-style attacks uh, on Israel ever again and to delegitimize ISIS, uh, delegitimize Hamas as sort of the ruling entity. But really, uh, the challenge for Israel is that it's not ultimately in Israel's strategic interest to launch uh, a long protracted conflict um, in Gaza because it would likely cause uh, an uprising in the West Bank. It would likely cause Hezbollah attacks from both Lebanon and from Syria. That would weaken Israel militarily, economically, politically. And that's, of course, exactly the objective that Hamas and Iran have. And from a U.S. perspective, the priority has to be to contain Russia in the conflict with Ukraine, to contain China, and to fight Islamist uh, extremism more broadly. So really, nobody has a concrete... Uh, there, there's there's the, 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 uh, the objectives that you can achieve with a ground invasion are... Uh, uh, likely outweigh the strategic imperatives of not mounting ground invasion. And whatever uh, military action Israel takes has to be seen as directed against Hamas, not against the Palestinian people, and definitely not as retaliatory strike against the Palestinian people. So again, the politics are very challenging. Mm-hmm. Speaking with Christian Loy Prescht, professor at the Royal Military College and Queen's University, and editor of the Canadian Military Journal and Christian. We know that there have been shifting narratives uh, surrounding the hospital explosion that killed at least 500 people in the Gaza region uh, a few days ago. Do we now know who is responsible? So... Look, inherently, both sides, as we saw in conflicts also as in Ukraine, are going to try to instrumentalize these types of tragedies for their purposes. The broader issue, of course, is this. The Middle East is full of disaffected young men uh, who are uh, without economic prospects, without much of a future, without the opportunity to start a family because they don't have economic prospects. Uh, And so these types of strategies, tragedies, as we see, um, then become fodder for that disaffection. And you can see that when Middle Eastern leaders, in particular Jordanian King, who's long been sympathetic to the United States, cancels an opportunity to meet with the President of the United States, it shows how volatile the situation is in other Middle Eastern countries. Of course, roughly half of Jordan's population is of Palestinian origin. And so these leaders are all concerned about an Arab Spring if they become too sympathetic to uh, to the United States. And so these types of tragedies inherently play into the hands of Hamas 
um, irrespective of who's ultimately responsible. Christian, you mentioned the president, President Joe Biden, met with uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu yesterday. What was the focus of those discussions? Does that even uh, play a role or have any you know, effect on what's to come? Uh, very much so. I mean, the, the only people who really want a ground invasion and perhaps a permanent reoccupation are the right-wing coalition partners of Netanyahu. And of course, President Netanyahu himself has uh, significant legal challenges and so needs to those right-wing partners in order to remain in government. Um, and so the, the conversations between the U.S. president, the fact that the U.S. president goes on a short-term uh, unplanned mission effectively to Israel shows just how volatile volatile the situation is. But of course, President Biden holds a lot of the responsibility for what's happening here. It's President Biden's effort to try to broker peace between Saudi Arabia and Israel that likely caused Hamas uh, to engage in this escalation of the conflict to begin with. This is an effort by the Biden administration on the one hand uh, to try to generate stability before the next election that obviously uh, uh, went uh, terribly pear-shaped. And at the same time, the Biden administration trying to trump the Trump administration, um, uh, no pun intended here, in terms of the Trump administration's Abraham Accords. And so, you know, the Biden administration holds a considerable responsibility uh, for the loss of life in the Middle East and, of course, for the conflict in Ukraine. And so I think uh, uh, there's a bit of a reckoning about the uh, foreign policy track record of the Biden administration to come here. Christian, do we have uh, current numbers regarding the number of lives that have been lost in, in just under this two-week uh, long war? Um, so while, of course, every loss of life is tragic, one of the interesting aspects about the conflict is how relatively limited overall the loss of life has been relative to the population density uh, involved in Gaza, um, as well as, of course, in Israel, and relative to the weaponry that's uh, that's being used. And, of course, the indiscriminate use of weaponry uh, is by Hamas in this particular conflict, you know, behaving, as I said, essentially the way ISIS behaved. Um, and uh, Israel trying to use very high-end weaponry to try to um, uh, limit the collateral damage. But, as I say, that's going to be largely impossible in as densely uh, an environment as uh, as Gaza. And uh, but look, if there's a ground invasion, then the uh, the casualties on both sides are going to uh, mount exponentially. Um, and so this is why I think there's considerable effort. We also saw the visit by the German Chancellor to dissuade Israel from engaging in a large-scale ground invasion. Christian, as always, thank you so much for your expertise. Thanks for joining us this morning. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Appreciate it. Christian Leuprecht, professor at the Royal Military College and Queen's University and editor of the Canadian Military Journal. 6.05 now and breast cancer is the most common cancer impacting Canadian women and stats show you or a loved one will likely face a breast cancer diagnosis in your lifetime. Joining us to talk about screening and treatment during Breast Cancer Awareness Month is Dr. Amy Commander, Director of Breast Oncology and Cancer Survivorship at the Mass General Cancer Centre at Waltham. Good morning to you doctor, thanks so much for being with us. Good morning. We talked about the number one in eight. Is that truly the number of Canadian women who will be diagnosed with breast cancer in their lifetime? That seems very high. Yes, that is correct. One in eight Canadian women will develop breast cancer during their lifetime. So it's very important that we talk about um, screening tools for breast cancer during Breast Cancer Awareness Month. 
it's interesting with those numbers. We can put those numbers out, but I wonder if they're influenced, uh, Dr. Commander, uh, by any factors. Are some people more at risk, and, and who would fit under that umbrella? That's a great question. Certainly, there are identified risk factors for breast cancer. It's important for women to be aware of, for example, their family history. Certainly, if there's a family history of breast cancer in either the either the mother's side of the family or the father's side of the family, a woman should be aware of that. But there are many other factors that can contribute to risk, such as hormonal factors, reproductive factors, lifestyle factors, environmental factors. So it's very important for women to discuss their risk factors with their doctor. Uh, we can touch on hormones a lot uh, about in this topic, I'm sure, uh, in this conversation. So we'll come back to that in a minute because I just wanted to ask you, you know, you, you mentioned regular screenings. Uh, at what point do women start regular screenings? I've got a daughter. I need to start thinking about this. She's 17. Mammograms. And, and didn't they change the parameters around how often you get a mammogram? That's a great question. And I will say that various organizations have different recommendations for when women should start mammographic screening and how often they should do it. And this does vary, and there's some controversy, but mm-hmm. certainly in Canada, screening mammography is definitely recommended for average with women starting at age 50 and should be done every two years. So it's interesting being that it's uh, Awareness Month, awareness would maybe help women and give them that uh, cue to, to get the tests and, 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 and be proactive. And awareness also can help raise funds. So when you talk about the fundraising you know, piece, what is the latest when it comes to research and treatment options available? How are we doing in, the, in that area? Research definitely benefits from fundraising initiatives, and it is wonderful that this month we see so many great fundraisers to support research. I can honestly say as a breast oncologist, I'm thrilled with the immense progress we've made over the past few years in terms of finding new treatments for breast cancer, certainly for all different types of breast cancer. Breast cancer is not one disease. There are many subtypes, so we're finding new targeted therapies, the role for immunotherapy, new forms of anti-estrogen therapies. So it is a very exciting time in this field since we have all these new tools to help our patients. And fundraising is absolutely key. So thank you for asking that. Uh, let's talk about the, the hormone side of things that, you know, as women hit a certain age and, you know, the menopause issue rears its ugly heads. Is there still a, a, a great risk for breast cancer and cancers in general with hormone replacement therapy, et cetera? Or have we kind of figured out that, that some of that information was incorrect that women were given. Right. So there are many different types of hormone replacement therapy formulations out there now. So it's actually, you know, there's many different options. And sometimes these treatments are certainly indicated to help a woman manage symptoms during menopause. I would recommend your listeners to, for a woman to meet with her doctor and go over her own family history and breast cancer risks to make an informed decision about the risk benefit, whether hormone replacement therapy is a good idea for her. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to make a blanket mm-hmm. statement, but certainly I would say it's kind of a risk benefit analysis for an individual woman to make with her doctor. Well, let's break this down because the stat that Sue gave at the beginning, you know, when we talked about one in eight, meaning that you're, you, if it's not you, you're going to have a loved one or somebody close, maybe a, a neighbor or a coworker. So how can we, because I know as humans, we're very interesting creatures and we find sometimes conversations and actions uncomfortable. How can we support family and friends if, if they receive a breast cancer diagnosis? 
I love this question. And I do like to think about Breast Cancer Awareness Month is how can we actually take action during this month to support our loved ones, our friends who are facing a diagnosis of breast cancer? So thank you for asking. And I think support is absolutely key. And that can come in so many ways. Maybe you bring a meal to someone's house. Maybe you just show up and say, I'm going to walk your dog for you this week. Maybe you arrange a play date. You know, there's so many things we can do to show up for others in our lives. And that makes a big difference for an individual who's going through cancer treatment. So um, I just encourage my, you know, when people ask this question, I just say, show your support, show up, be there. Um, because really it makes you feel better. And of course it makes the individual who's going through the treatment feel so much Mm -hmm. better as well. It is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. We should be checking ourselves. We should be going to the doctor to make sure they're checking, getting our regular mammograms, all of the above. Thank you so much for the reminders, doctor. Really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you for inviting me. Dr. Amy Commander, Director of Breast Oncology and Cancer Survivorship at the Mass General Cancer Center, Waltham. 718 on your... Thursday morning, the war between Russia and Ukraine and now the war between Israel and Hamas. What impact do these events have on our mental health and how can we support those personally impacted by these conflicts and the heavy news coming out, it seems, every day in our world? Joining us to discuss is Karen Gallagher-Burt, mental health advocate and social worker out of the Distress Centre. Good morning. Welcome back once again, Karen. Good morning. Now, whether or not you have family and friends in the Middle East or you're attached to Ukraine in some matter, it it doesn't, I mean, that that must have a a much bigger impact, but so much heavy news. Is that something that you hear about, uh, you know, when people are reaching out to the distress center that it's impacting people? A hundred percent. We noticed that when there are major conflicts, even when the pandemic happened, for example, those folks who maybe already struggle with some of their mental health, those things exacerbate and make it worse because now you're focused and worried on something on a massive world scale, as well as your daily problems or issues or concerns. So it it always exacerbates. We do see an increase when something major happens. It could be anything from the queen dying to, you know, a war as we describe. How do we, how do we navigate that? Like I've got, my son comes home from school and he has friends at school who are Palestinian. I have friends who are Jewish, you know, Israeli. So, I mean, when you've got sort of that going on in the world, and it really, it hits us here at home in our own personal circles. How do we navigate that? Or how do I even talk to my kids about that well? You know, always, always my response is age specific. And mm-hmm. yours is a teenager. So, you know, you can certainly have much more um, detailed conversations, mm-hmm. I would say. I think it's sticking with, um, are your conversations going to be from the educational lens? Or are they going to be from the emotional support lens? Right. Because... I would say personally, I know little tiny bits of information. I have some history, and this is a long conflict history, but honestly, I don't feel that I have the right to have an opinion, but what I do have is the ability to be emotionally supportive of someone and recognize where their emotions are uh, because this is highly emotional for so many people, Mm -hmm. and it does bring back, I think particularly, I would say within our Jewish community, I mean, there's such a long history there. Absolutely. And, and, you know, we can speak to both sides. I think all of us have empathy for everyone involved in any conflict, but we can certainly speak to the long history that the, the Jewish community has experienced. 
If we're hearing these news stories coming out, and again, with the two conflicts right now, as very similar to the pandemic, it's all around us, and we don't want to be completely in the dark. We want to know what's going on in the world. Is there some kind of divider line to, to get information but not be... I guess you'd say inundated with it. Well, I know that during during the pandemic, I stopped watching the news all every day. I I, I took it down to once or twice a week, or I picked a show that um, was for me informative i actually turned a lot to the bbc during that time because i found that their world presentation was a bit better for me so i think it is about limiting how much information you're taking in around it but then also filtering it deciding okay what are the reliable sources for me and what am i going to use just like anything else dr google or you know google the commander is not going to give you the right information so you know if we're sort of stuck in that area of you know how to kind of conquer that discussion and can it be very very difficult is it is it best just to send people to the experts like the distress center for example do you know i i think so but but overall i i do think most most of us can support others it can really truly be about compassion and empathy you don't have to agree with someone to feel for them um and we describe that often when people on the further end of the spectrum might have um, a mental health issue that has a dissociative kind of point to it mm-hmm. well what they might be thinking or believing is happening may not be real, but the emotions are. And so if you stay away from the argument and just go with that, this is not the time to educate you on my view or my opinion. This is the time to be supportive. It makes it so much easier. Yeah, fair. One uh, saying that I heard a long time ago, Karen, and we're speaking with Karen Gallagher-Burt, mental health advocate, social worker, and works out of the Distress Centre, is... If you want to feel normal, do normal things. Mm. So how many times when people are going through these you know, these stressful situations, hearing bad news, uh, would it be beneficial for them to go for a walk, do physical exercise, or maybe volunteer and, and keep busy? Okay, you could volunteer at the Distress Center, Andrew. Oh, wow. <laughs> that's perfect. There you go. Because honestly, that's what it is. So what are the things that have worked for you in the past that have calmed you down? You know, we always joke that people start with the standards. Take a bath, have a tea, cup of tea. Well, maybe those are not the things. Maybe it's... I'm, right now I'm doing a puzzle. In the wintertime, a puzzle comes out and I'm like, I can distract myself. And then I, I like to remind people and myself that the difference between reacting to something and responding to something is about a minute. <laughs> Ooh, so uh, for me, it takes a minute and a half. I'm, I'm slow. <laughs> but, but when I get an emotional response to something and I want to instantly react, it's like, okay, take that 60 seconds pull myself back, breathe. hold on to it, breathe, go to, go to the washroom, go wash your hands, do something, and then come back and have a response. So like a reset almost. Almost a reset. Well, it is a reset. It is about stopping yourself and acknowledging that your immediate emotional response probably might be a little over the top on any end. Everything tensions are high about everything right now, so yeah. that's really I think wonderful advice. We hear that a lot when you're sending an email or a text. Oh, yeah. Just you know, we have a 24-hour rule in my daughter's mm-hmm. softball league. Even before you reply to a nasty text or a commenter, 24 hours. So sometimes you just need to give yourself that moment to yeah. Well, I'm, a, I'm big on you know I address rudeness and things like that. To me, uh, that's just not acceptable. But if someone has an emotional response, right, it, is that take it back and then not so much necessarily always put yourself in their shoes but think about is that about me mm-hmm. or is that about them mm. fair such Very a great sure. point all great points always you you always just you just de-stress us 
Well, thank you. You bring us like a little peace and well, a little Well, I wish calm. you could say that to my husband. <laughs> hey. I'll call him later. I'll talk him down. Sounds good. Thank you so much for joining us. As always, Karen Gallagher-Burt, mental health advocate, social worker, distresscenter.com, crisis chat text available 24 hours a day, 403. Remember this number, 266-HELP, 266-4357.